0: Hey, Mike, I got a question for you.
1: What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at TexasPodcast.fm.fm, .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed, you don't need to change anything right now, but uh, just check it out.
0: You lost all your money?
1: Go to Texas. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In 1832, policy changes within the Mexican government towards the Anglo colonists in Texas led to one of the earliest sparks of the Texas Revolution. This week, we look at part one of the Anahuac Disturbances. But first, what's your favorite toy replica weapon of the Texas Revolution? Now I'll just, I'll tell you where this comes from. With the Alamo as a kid, they had like cool like toy flintlocks, they had some other things, but I remember I had a cool... Pop gun with a cork in it, and then you like yank it back and put the cork right back in the barrel. And you could gleefully reenact as a child the Battle of the Alamo with invisible invaders.
2: Yeah, well, I had a toy uh, flintlock pistol that I may have even gotten at the Alamo, either there or the Wonder World gift shop, I forget which. But uh, I guess my favorite replica of the Texas Revolution. Um, I consider it a sort of weapon, perhaps a psychological weapon. Is the uh, the "come and take it" flag from the uh, the Battle of Gonzales, where the uh, the Mexican army tried to take the the cannons back? Um, that has become a mm-hmm. a pretty prominent symbol of the Texas Revolution. And I can, uh, in my mind's eye, picture a bunch of uh, Texicans waving their own crudely fashioned
1: replica of that flag. Uh, right
2: on across the
1: battlefield and by by army you mean a couple of guys on horseback and by well yeah by cannons yeah. you mean one tiny starter pistol <laughs> <laughs> sure sure
2: Let's not it's, <laughs> that's why i said it's a psychological weapon
0: psychological warfare let's not let's not let facts get into the way of our of our conversation uh well i i will go you one better in terms of psychological warfare uh, uh, and that is Davy Crockett's coonskin cap, because nothing strikes fear in the heart of a Mexican, an Indian, or a
2: bar like a Davy Crockett coonskin cap.
1: <laughs> <sighs>
2: All right. Uh, fearsome, uh, fearsome headwear.
1: Yeah. You, any of you guys exactly. could have said Bowie Knife, by the way. I love that. Wide <laughs> open. <laughs> never
0: seen a toy (laughs) bowie knife never ever seen a toy Uh, bowie well it's legal to
1: carry a toy bowie
0: knife now in texas it's legal to carry a real bowie knife in texas that's a foot long so
1: they're not toys anymore anglo-american colonization in texas began legally at least in 1820 initially with the spanish empire spain's traditional policy forbade foreigners in its territory but the remote and dangerous elements of the colony meant that it was sparsely populated There were only three settlements in the province of Texas in 1820, Nacogdoches, San Antonio de Béjar, and La Bahia de Espíritu Santo, which would later be known as Goliad. Most of the Spanish settlement was in small towns and ranches on the Rio Grande and in South Texas. The bulk of Texas was open and populated only by native tribes. Recruiting foreigners to develop the Spanish frontier was not new. As early as the 1790s, Spain invited Anglo-Americans to settle in Upper Louisiana, which is now Missouri, these foreigners were to be Catholic, industrious, and willing to become Spanish citizens in return for generous land grants. Spain expected the new settlers to increase economic development and help deter the often hostile Plains Indians, such as the Comanches and the Kiowa. In practice,
0: though, by the early 1800s, the border became quite porous. As we saw with our very early filibusters episodes, as early as the 1790s, Americans crossed the border into Texas, to hunt buffalo and horses, and to attempt to trade with the Indians. Until the turn of the century, though, reaction by Spanish authorities was swift. After the weakening of that Spanish authority, which was accompanied by the Napoleonic Wars in Europe and the Mexican independence movements, it became easier for Anglos to get away with coming into and settling in Texas.
2: As had been the case with Missouri and Louisiana before the Louisiana Purchase, American squatters both preceded and followed Gutierrez-McGee expedition. Lafitte's pirate base on Galveston also brought American settlers. Most of them were chased out when the Spanish got organized enough to get rid of them, but when Mexico finally obtained its independence in 1821, there were again pockets of squatters settled throughout Texas. On his very first visit through Texas, Stephen Austin reported seeing cabins and farms along the Brazos and Colorado rivers, occupied by American squatters. Indeed, this is where we get the Jug Hunter ghost story, which uh, we've talked about on our very first Halloween episode. Coming soon, Halloween. Was it the very first one?
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Tales of Old Brazoria. And as we also mentioned in our Stephen F. Austin episode, after fits and starts, the Mexican government... The governments, because they were multiple, initially wanted to continue the Spanish colonization plan after its independence. They granted contracts to empresarios who would settle and supervise selected qualified immigrants. The first of these, of course, was Stephen F. Austin, and his original three The first of these, of course, was Stephen F Austin and his original old three hundred colony. Austin was followed by Hayden Edwards, Green DeWitt, and over twenty five others, for whom much is named within the state of Texas. Each colonist (laughs) was expected to take an oath of loyalty to Mexico and profess to be a Christian, which in this case for Mexico meant, you better be Catholic. They are also legally forbidden from owning slaves, though the Cojia'i Texas Constitution allowed for what amounted to a form of indentured servitude whereby slaves should be freed after 10 years. And of course, they weren't. Well, settlement in Texas was attractive for several reasons.
0: Obviously, land was plentiful, and it was ridiculously cheap, even for the time. A dollar twenty-five an acre was not an uncommon high amount for land in Texas. A small amount of money could secure huge tracts of land, both for farming and for ranching. In addition, Mexico and the United States had no extradition laws enabling creditors to collect debts or to return fugitives. Texas became a safe haven. For many Americans who've defaulted on their loans when the panics of 1819 and 1825 caused the southern and western economy to collapse. You lost all your money? Go to Texas. So finally, frankly, among many of the American settlers, they actually thought that either Texas wouldn't be in Mexico for long or that it actually already belonged to the United States because of the Louisiana Purchase. They wanted to get in on the cheap land and have clear title to it before annexation occurred in the same way that the legal settlers in Missouri had done before the Louisiana Purchase.
2: The Anglo-American settlers imported their culture to Texas and resisted conforming to the Mexican culture, even when purchase by the United States became increasingly unlikely. The troubles caused by Hayden Edwards' Sperdonia Revolt and the financial malpractices several other and the financial malpractices of several other colonies resulted in an increasing amount of heartburn for the government in Mexico City. The Mexican government of Guadalupe Victoria wanted to know more about what was really happening in Texas, so they sent a well-respected commander who'd helped settle the Fredonia Revolt to
1: Texas. His name was José Manuel Rafael Simeón de Mir y Terán. Miri Teran was a young general who had served nine months as Minister of War, and in 1827, President Victoria named him to lead a scientific and boundary expedition into Texas to observe the natural resources and the Indians, to discover the number and attitudes of the Americans living there, and also to determine the United States-Mexico boundary between the Sabine and the Red Rivers. Now remember this is all a lawless no man's neutral land. remember this was a lawless neutral no man's land at the time He considered Austin to be an honorable qualified leader and liked him very much He believed that Austin's colonists were industrious and appreciative of the new country He also believed that the swarms of newcomers streaming across the border were a mixed bag of unruly and largely disreputable characters Honest and dishonest alike though he startlingly stated that they quote carried their political constitutions in their pockets. Americans had been raised with the idea that it was self-evident that they had unalienable rights, and it never occurred to them that those rights they'd been born with don't actually apply when you're in another country. Now, the Texians, at least the
0: educated ones, pretty much approved of Mexico's Constitution of 1824. It was, to be fair, generally patterned after the U.S. Constitution, but in a lot of ways it more accurately resembled the Spanish Constitution of 1812. Unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Mexican Congress was the final interpreter of the Constitution of 1824. That means there was no Supreme Court making the final decisions about the law. Catholicism was the state religion, and it was supported by the public treasury. The rights of citizens were not specified in any way in the document. Most importantly for the nation of Mexico in general, there was no specific delineation of the rights of the states in the union they were required to have separate executive legislative and judicial functions in their individual constitutions which were supposed to be in harmony with the national constitution but local affairs were in theory independent of the general government now this theoretical question of now this theoretical question of just who is in charge of what would drive the decades-long conflict between the centralists, which is power-controlled by the general government, and the federalists, which is power-controlled by the local or state governments.
2: For the Texans, it was more simple. Even the Texians, who approved of the Constitution of 1824, either presumed that it had a Bill of Rights, which it didn't, or that the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution, along with their self Evident, unalienable rights applied to them while they resided in Texas, which, again, they didn't. As the spirit of Jacksonian democracy took hold in the United States, these settlers took this spirit with them into Texas, and Mir i Tehran could clearly see it. In his report on the commission, Mir i Tehran recommended that strong measures be taken to stop the United States from acquiring Texas. Texas had, quote, strange and incoherent parts without parallel in our federation, he wrote, and told the commission that if they didn't act quickly, quote, Texas could throw the whole nation into rebellion. He recommended additional garrisons surrounding the settlements, increasing coastal trading, fully and clearly abolishing slavery, and especially encouraging more Mexican and European,
1: specifically German and Irish, settlers to come to Texas. As is often the case with Mexico in this time, politics intervened before the government could actually do anything. As we talked about in prior episodes, when Victoria's term ended, the chaos surrounding the election of his successor resulted in initially centralist leader Gomez Pedraza taking power before liberal Federalist Vicente Guerrero overthrew him. Guerrero prepared to act on the recommendations, and indeed, as a Mexican of African descent, he did abolish slavery in Mexico. The special conditions of Cojia y Teos were continued, though. Guerrero was soon overthrown by another, even harsher centralist, Anastasio Bustamante. Bustamante was the leader who fully implemented Mier y Terán's recommendations. His suggestions were incorporated into the law of April 6, 1830, which also called for the prohibition of slavery and closed the borders of Texas to Americans. Now this did not go over so well. So it's at this stage that two of the more interesting characters in Texas
0: history enter the stage, and both men were at the center of the next great crisis on Texas's road to revolution. We're going to talk about these men with some detail before proceeding on with our story, but it's worth noting that neither man was a Mexican, and on the surface, they should have a lot more in common with the Texian colonists than with the central government in Mexico City. Now, such is the nature of Texas, though, that not everything seems to turn out the
2: way you think it should. John Davis Bradburn was born in Virginia in 1787, and later moved first to Kentucky and then Tennessee, where he was a merchant. He possibly joined the Gutierrez-McGee expedition in 1812, as it paid well, and there was the promise of land. He returned to Natchitoches, Louisiana with several of the filibusters after that expedition's defeat, and in 1814 was elected third lieutenant in the company when the British attacked New Orleans. The regiment failed to make it to New Orleans before
1: Andrew Jackson defeated the British invasion. After the war, Bradburn joined another Gutierrez-McGee veteran, Henry Perry, in a new filibuster endeavor which recaptured Nacogdoches. From there, Bradburn used his merchant and military conduction to funnel men and equipment to Perry at Boulevard Peninsula and Perry's Point, which is now known as Anahuac. In 1816, they joined Louis-Michel Aury, a Mexican revolutionary commander who first established the port on Galveston Island. They went with another revolutionary, Francisco Javier Mina, on his failed attack on Tamaulipas in Mexico, where Bradburn became second in command of the American volunteers. Bradburn was one of the few to escape the debacle, but he continued to serve under revolutionaries in Mexico, finishing the revolution in service to Augustin Iturbide. His connection to the future emperor led to a rank of lieutenant colonel, and a marriage to a titled heiress.
0: Bradburn was skilled at knowing when to switch sides, avoiding the fall of Iturbide and navigating the numerous political changes of 1820s Mexico. In 1830, he was appointed commander of a new garrison on Galveston Bay. Commandante Mir Ituron ordered Bradburn to locate a site for a new fort, a military town, and a custom house on the bay. Bradburn chose the old site that he remembered, Perry's Point, which overlooked the mouth of the Trinity River, and he named the site Anahuac, an ancient Aztec name. Years of integration with the Mexican central government and within the authoritarian Mexican army had made him haughty, arrogant, and, as Austin described him, half-crazy part of his time. He was a staunch centralist, but he was also
2: fully conscious of the laws that he was tasked with enforcing. Our second character was even more interesting. George Fisher was born Georgi Rabar in Hungary in 1795 to Serbian parents. In 1813, he fought in the Serbian Revolution, escaped to America, <clears throat> and escaped to America when the revolution failed. Upon arrival, he was indentured by the ship's owners because he couldn't pay for his passage. He and two companions escaped in the ship's boat and landed above Philadelphia assuming the new identity of George Fisher in order to avoid his debt. Fisher moved west before 1819 and looked into going to Texas with the James Long Expedition, but didn't go. In 1825, he went to Mexico and attempted to gain
1: an impresario contract in 1827. Fisher became a naturalized citizen in 1829 and gained a contract to take over the now vacant Hayden Edwards grant. His Mexican political connections led to an appointment as collector of customs at Galveston and then Austin's colony secretary in San Felipe, but he was fired when he was suspected of spying for the Mexican government. After being reinstated as customs collector by Amir E. Turan, Fisher was assigned to Bradburn's command and ordered to set up the customs house there in November 1831. He decreed that all ships leaving Brazoria and certain other ports had to be cleared through Anahuac. The Bustamante government had ended the tax exemption that had been granted to Austin's colonies and was now taking seriously the trade coming in and out of the colonies of Texas. These taxes were seen as a crackdown on the Texans, and the men responsible for collecting them could not have been more ill-suited for the job. By their actions, they were perceived as a political opportunist and an autocrat, and they would be at the center of the crisis to come. Next week.
0: So, interesting characters.
1: Well, yeah. and I mean, and getting back to the
2: the whole premise that we're discussing here is just the the idea, um you know we were discussing a little before the show, the whole idea that uh, Americans, as a culture, it seems a lot of the time, um, we just tend to carry that with us. that idea that our our nation's constitution, our Bill of rights, um, applies to us as people, no matter where we are on the planet, um rather than you know our our nation. And in our, current day of a more global world um that kind of makes sense but uh, especially in the time of uh you know pre-statehood texas um that was really not a thing
0: <laughs> yeah and and like probably in 1820 the bulk of the people in the country if they had anything memorized if they could read if they could, even if they couldn't read if they had something memorized it was going to be the 10 commandments the lord's prayer And probably the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. Like those would be things that they had memorized that maybe that's the school and that they got. But you know, this is this is, you know, so in a lot of the reading that I've done, this is also at right the same time as, like we said, as the rise of Jacksonian democracy, when when the what we would consider would be considered at the time the lower classes, the common people, so to speak became democratized and became part of the political process in America. You know, Jackson was was one of the great first populist presidents in that he had support from the Western uh farmers and uh uh the people of the West who voted for him and loved him. And that was because, you know, they they favored a a, a devolution of of I'm sorry. That's because he favored an expansion of that democratic process away from the the active citizens of you know the nobility or not uh, the landed class into just everybody. So, you know, these are the people that 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 did come to Texas, and we've talked. Gosh, this 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 episode, we've already referenced probably at least six episodes, maybe seven episodes that we've talked about in the past.
1: You know, here's the thing. That we've said early on in some of the early episodes when we started going into this history. If you really want to understand the birth of Texas, you really have to, like, under, look, go back and look at, like, 50 years of the history of Mexico and its political struggles. Right, but also you got to look at—you've also got to look at 50 years of American exactly. history, Exactly. And too. that's the other point—yeah, that's the other side of it, too, is that, okay, these, <clears throat> these people that fled, they fled into a—you know, it— look, let's be be honest, if you were in crippling debt and there was an escape hatch that was right next door with almost free land, you would go. You know, it was just, it was too much. But I can see where it's interesting, like this uh, perception of the Austin people. that's a good colony. Those are some good folks. And then there's these other guys. So, anyway, <clears throat> I was just referencing we've talked we have talked a lot about these guys and uh, it's fun to hear all these familiar names that we've talked about in a new story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, every everybody ran away, you know, ran ran seeking forgiveness of their debts and that was a common theme. Um yep. I I think it's also, you know, similar to how there's a perception in the, the American Revolution that Uh, Americans didn't want to pay their taxes, you know, from the British. I'm sure if you if you look (laughs) at British history, it's the Americans didn't want to pay their taxes, and the Texans didn't want to pay taxes. And we're going to see it's a little more than that. The the taxes were kind of the tip of the iceberg, but there's there's other things going on uh, with this, with these, uh, the situation in that's going to be brewing in Anahuac. But the background is is that these are very fiercely independent. Uh, people who feel like they have rights that are that don't have to be written down, it they just they those rights apply to them, uh, and it applies to them everywhere. And there's a, there's an idea that in- inalienable rights do apply to you everywhere, but in many cases there was a confusion of and a conflation of inalienable rights versus the stated bill of rights in the United States Constitution that people thought applied to them as well
1: that's an, that's i'm yeah. and It's kind of funny. i mean it, it <laughs> seems like basic citizenship 101 but i right you know it was the past people yeah, were right.
0: yeah and yeah and austin's letters between him and me and tiran Tehran, you know austin kind of agreed with this they had the kind of the same opinion about all these new new texans coming across the border these uh, you know they both agreed they were they were they were a lot of of not not great the greatest people. Austin carefully picked his colonists for the 300, you know, his original 300, and his later colonies. And for the most part, those people did abide by, by the rules and the laws. But uh, there was a critical mass that was
1: brewing. Yep. Well, it's a virtual powder gig, so I can't wait to hear what happens next week. But Texas explodes. <laughs> That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at TexasPodcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at MrJava. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you love this show... Get out there and tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. And don't forget to keep watching texaspodcast.fm. FM, just like your grandpa's old radio. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.